most people are at least vaguely familiar with the inhuman treatment that happened inside concentration camps during World War II. The thing most people have never heard is that Germany was not the only country that engaged in collecting and imprisoning specific ethnic groups. In fact, the one we're talking about today was claiming to be the most freedom-forward place on Earth while also building these camps in bleached desert wastelands where the weather alone could kill. The United States of America. Welcome to the Just Dumb Enough podcast, a show that acknowledges no one is always an expert by dispelling misconceptions with real experts. I'm your host as always, Colton Petrie. My guest today is John Suzuki. John is the author of the Amazon best-selling book, American Grit. It details stories from a shameful time in American history and the incredible people that rose to greatness in spite of it. John does a great job breaking down all the details and easily secured a place as one of my favorite guests, with a fascinating topic that, for obvious reasons, has been largely buried. This interview covers everything from the aftershock of Pearl Harbor to Executive Order 9066, the 442nd Regimental Combat Team, war heroes like Shiro Kishino, and what life was like for those who were imprisoned after all the fighting was over. For those that listened last episode, you'll know I'm padding out a new studio space and still had a little echo when I did this interview with John. But it should be all better in the future, and honestly, it isn't even that noticeable to me now. Let's learn America's dirty secret. Welcome to the show, John Suzuki. Hey, Colton. It's awesome to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I am so excited to have you on the show today. Why don't you give a brief introduction of who you are to the listeners? Yeah, well, my name is John, and um, I, I wrote a book that was released recently called American Grit from a Japanese-American concentration camp rises an American war hero. And um, it released a couple of months ago, and it's been an Amazon bestseller. And it is it has been um, a labor of love that uh, is just an incredible, incredible story about the episode during World War II when uh, concentration camps in the United States actually happened. Yeah, and I think that might honestly be surprising for a lot of people because mm -hmm. when you hear like a World War II concentration camp, we have a very specific image of Nazi Germany. Yes, sir. But that was not the only concentration camp that existed in the world at the time. No, it, and, and in fact, in, in the United States, when Japan bombed Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941, um, they created a huge amount of fear on the West Coast, fear of the Japanese attacking the West Coast, fear of uh, Japanese spies on the West Coast. And so President Roosevelt issued infamously Executive Order 9066, which authorized the United States Army to evict and move and imprison 122,000 people off the West Coast across 10 concentration camps um, scattered in what I call the badlands of America, which are the deserts and swamps of America. 
and um, and they were incarcerated because of their race, because of their Japanese ancestry, and for no other reason than that. Yeah, and this was, you know, like you said, it's an ancestry thing. These were not like, oh, we found Japanese tourists that happened to be in the U.S. for some reason and put them in a prison. Like, we built camps specifically for people who weren't even necessarily first-generation Japanese. Yeah, yeah, it, it included Japanese-Americans, you know, American citizens. And, um, you know, the the prevailing, I won't say the prevailing, but a prevailing fear was that if you looked Japanese, if you looked like the enemy, you were the enemy. And it didn't matter whether you were an American citizen or not. In fact, 50,000 children and babies were incarcerated in these concentration camps. It didn't matter. They look like the, I mean, are you kidding me? Right. But they look like the enemy. So that was, that was the only criteria that there were no, there were no accusations of any crimes having been committed, nothing. And of course there was no due process. If you were, if you were, if you happened to be of Japanese ancestry, you were taken away and locked up. I mean, we did literally, we grabbed people and threw them in these camps and we took everything like i have heard stories about people who were business owners and they're like lost their home lost their business thrown in a camp very horrific stories of just like immediately losing your entire way of life yeah you know some of these people had been in the united states for three or four decades right i mean for since the early turn of the century uh, of the 1900s and um and when executive order 9066 happened um they a lot of them lost their they had to they had to they they could only bring the only thing they could take with them was what they could carry you can't carry a farm you can't carry a business right i mean you can only carry not that much i mean imagine imagine all you being able to bring with you is what you take on a two week vacation right and so they had to sell their businesses and their farms and and uh and their homes and everything on on pen, for pennies on the dollar and yeah. you know they lost everything and and they were they were shipped off and and the crazy thing about it was that at the time that they were being evacuated the only the only thing nobody told them where they were going nobody told them where they what what was going to happen to them nobody told them that uh they were you know what what their life was going to be if it was going to be forever or if it was going to be for years or months or whatever and and the only reference they had was what was happening in Nazi Germany. And so there was a tremendous amount of fear because a lot of people thought that they were they were just going to be gathered up, taken out to the desert and shot. Um, and so nobody knew. Nobody knew what was going to happen. I mean, legitimately, nobody knew what was going to happen. And the only reference they had was what was happening to the Jews in Europe. Yeah. And like you said, we didn't exactly pick like, you know, nice climates. We weren't like, hey, we're going to relocate you temporarily to an area somewhere nearby. We're like, hey, we're going to take you potentially a very long way away to a very unpleasant place that we just kind of threw together. Nobody knew. Nobody knew. And and when you say threw together, you're absolutely right. You know, they, they were they were taken to the deserts. Uh, I mean, literally the deserts, places, uh, places where it got over 100 degrees during the summers and got down to zero in the winter times, and um, th these were places that they would where they wouldn't build maximum security prisons for the world the world's worst offenders today, 
And and these camps were little sh- I mean, they're barracks that were basically nothing more than shacks. In fact, today we wouldn't even consider them shacks. You know, they were they were built with with uh with lumber and um covered in tar paper. That was it. Lumber with tar paper. And they had to survive in these things, you know, during during zero degree temperatures. And and so these places were built in the literally the deserts and swamps of America where nobody wanted wanted to be. And they put them out there because they wanted to take these people away from any known <laughs> area or population, you know, which which made it made it the worst places in America to live. Yeah. yeah. Well, and as you referenced, you know, this was not like, oh, a thousand people. Like there were 50,000 children just children. by themselves. Like just that number, that's a huge amount of people. Not to exactly. mention, like, that's just the kids. That's just the kids. There's a, t- a total of 122,000 people. And um, it, it's just it, it's just amazing. It's it's amazing what what happened. And, you know, people look at it and they go, well, gosh, you know, that was World War II. That was a crazy time, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, the reason why I wrote this book is because I'm, I'm fearful that it's going to happen again. In fact, I'm, I'm almost, I'm, I'm pretty much convinced that at some point in time, it's going to happen again, because we're, we're seeing kind of the same formula for really bad things to happen, um, happening as we speak. And, uh, and so, a, a big part of this, the biggest part of this is to educate folks that this thing, this actually happened. And when people say, no, John, this is going to ha- isn't going to happen again. You know, you think about, go back to 9-11, go back to 9-11. Uh, there were people who felt that all Muslims were terrorists. So we got to round them up and stick them in concentration camps. I don't know if you remember that or not, but you know, I mean, it's crazy. And and fortunately, calmer heads prevailed, including a lot of people in the Japanese American community, by the way, who stood up and said, no, that's not going to happen. Right. And more recently, you, you think about COVID and all of the Asian hate, you know, especially against the Chinese community. These people in, in, in the Chinese American community in the United States had nothing to do with, <laughs> with COVID happening. Right. And yet in, in the Chinatowns across the country, you started seeing all these attacks on their businesses and their persons. And it's just, you know, when you when you have when you have what I call the bucketizing of people, you know, you have the you have the white bucket and the and black bucket and the gay bucket and the straight bucket and the Muslim bucket and Christian bucket. You have all these buckets. And 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 then you have widespread fear that happens. That is the formula of really bad for really bad things to happen, like concentration camps. And the problem is that bad things happening to anybody, anywhere, in any country is inevitable. Right? And so understanding this part of our history, my, my, my other concern is that fewer and fewer people, it seems like, know about this chapter of our history. And, you know, chapter, uh, history forgotten becomes potentially history repeated. And so the more people who are out there who know this part of our history and can kind of get out in front of it, it, it you know, this is going to sound silly and it's going to sound, you know, kind of grammar schoolish. But it's all about love. You know, when people ask me about it, I, I tell them, you know what the opposite of love is? It's not hate. It's fear. And so, you know, especially these days, I mean, our, our political structure is just so divided 
right? And there's so much fear on both sides. And, and, you know, and you look at what's happening in the world and again, all this bucketizing of stuff, um, we got to get in front of it. We got to get in front of it and, and letting folks know that this chapter in our history happened, um, hopefully we'll, we'll wake up some people and, uh, maybe even bring us together in, in, in some ways, right. So that we can all, we can all get together. And, and when we start seeing, really bad things start to happen, you know, like we, like we saw the, the feeling towards the Muslims during nine 11, you know, we get out in front of it. Yeah. It certainly seems like anytime we are exposed to the extreme, right? Like, Oh, yep. it's a very serious illness. It's a terrorist attack, whatever it is. We want like a person that we can physically look at and hate. We're like, yes. okay, who's like, who can I blame immediately for this? Because the exactly. idea of, you know, a group of terrorists from an organization of any kind, like it's, it's so nebulous that it's very hard for people to like latch onto. Right. And so we do start right. seeing that, you know, and I remember it, especially during COVID being that like stop Asian hate movement had to come up because people were just randomly being assaulted. Yep. And you're yep. like, what are we doing? Yep. And you know, you, you, that, that's an amazing, amazing, um, uh, thing that you just brought up in terms of blame, find, finding somebody that we can blame, you know, part of it, part of it is, is this whole victimhood thing, you know, of, of everybody's, everybody seems to be a victim and everybody seems to be looking for somebody to blame for everything, right. Um, regardless of, of what's going on in your life, someone, someone else must be to blame for it. And, you know, I, I, I think about that and um, we got to stop. We got to stop. And, and part of this book um, is about, is not only about uh, what happened in the concentration camps, but what happened with the Japanese American community that was affected by it. And it's, it's called American grit for a reason, right? Uh, they took, even though it was not they who, who put themselves in those camps, right? They took responsibility for the life they were given. And, you know, and, and just understanding what they did in building communities in these camps, right? They built their own schools, they built their own hospitals, they built their own uh, stores and, 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 and police force and fire departments and everything, right? And, and it's what they did in response, not only during the camps, but after World War II was over and they were, re- they were released to start all over again. Um, and so... Uh, my hope is that this book will also inspire people, right? That'll say, holy cow, you know, I I, I, I think I've got it bad. Look at these people. <laughs> look at these people and look at what they did and look how they came out of it. Because, um, and, and we'll talk a little bit more in a little bit about what happened post-World War II. Uh, but it was decades. It was decades of of continuing to fight uh, for their American dream of a better life for, the, for their families in this country. But yeah, and I think it's an important frame when we're looking at this story. You know, we've talked about, you know, over 120,000 people that have been just rounded up and yep. shipped off to an unknown location in a horrible place, you know, with very little at all provided. Right. Know, like you said, not even what we would consider a shack anymore. Yep. And so, you know, that's kind of the life of the camp. But you know, we have to recognize these were not, again, they're not good camps. We didn't set them up for success. <laughs> and so there was death in these camps too. Like people died. Absolutely. There. Absolutely. There, there, a lot of people died. Um, a lot of people considered committed suicide 
you know? And so, um, so it wasn't, it wasn't a happy place, you know, these camps. It's interesting because when I wrote this book, um, my daughter read it, right? And she, both my son, I have, I have a, I have grown kids, my, my, my sons, but they're both in their thirties. And, um, but when my daughter read it, she came to me and she said, seriously, I said, what do you mean? She goes, you know, when I learned this in high school, when I learned about the, uh, the camps in high school, they made it sound like it was summer camp, you know? And so, so the first, my first reaction was, well, kudos to them that they're at least teaching you. But the second response was, are you serious? Right. And my son, his response to my book was, are you freaking kidding me? Did this actually happen? You know? And so, um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's a story that, that needs to get out there. And, you know, there are, there are books about the the camps and there, there are books out there about, about the experiences that I share. Um, but I took a different approach. I took it, I took it from the standpoint of writing a true story around the experience, but around one man and um, his experience and going, going into the camps uh, volunteering out of the camps to fight and die for the United States Army, who put him and his family in those camps to begin with, right? And and by the way, he when he joined the army, they were still imprisoned in the camps by the United States Army. It, it's and and um, it's just it's just it's just an incredible incredible story of human endurance and grit. And so my son was he says I, I don't believe this. This, this this nobody's talking about this and um so the format that i used was to to focus on one person's story while um educating the world on everything else that happened around him and um and i originally wrote it to be uh uh in the hopes of making it a major motion picture because um in my in my viewpoint uh the more interesting i can make without exaggerating without embellishing because the story itself does not need it does not need any embellishing but you know if if i could make it into a storyline that would cause people to feel like they're not reading a history book but they're reading a story an amazing story uh my hope is is that you know it'll resonate with more people yeah and it does read like that like you're it's no longer a history lesson. You're almost reading like an epic story of, you know, the thousand years ago where there's this one soldier to rise above the ranks, to do the extraordinary, to become, you know, the legend of history kind of a thing. And we don't get to hear about a lot of this. Cause like you said, even in the education system, we don't call them concentration camps, even though it's the same kind of situation happening in the same kind of time. Exactly. We say like, oh, the internment camps. Right. Or we call them relocation camps. Right. right. But when you when you look up the definition of concentration camp camps, you know, it's 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 gathering, it's gathering large groups of people, right? Notably often, oftentimes persecuted minorities, and purposely imprisoning them in relatively small areas with insufficient facilities. That is the definition of constant, but be, and, and I, I recognize this and, and I, I did not write this out of disrespect of um, what happened with the Holocaust. I've got lots and lots of friends whose, whose families were affected by the Holocaust and it was a terrible, terrible thing. But the different, the difference here was that um, millions of uh, a million Jews 
were killed in these camps. Thankfully, um, none of our people were, were purposely killed, but you know, there were people that were killed, um, but none of them purposely. Uh, but the fact the fact remains that they were concentration camps. And I call and and I purposely use the name in in my book. Uh a little bit risky, right? Because uh, but I haven't I have yet to have anybody come up to me and say or talk to me and say, John, um, you shouldn't have used that term. Every more more often than not, lots of people have told me, thank you for using that term, you know, because you're you're calling it out for what they were. Yeah, I think it's a very accurate term to use because like it is a concentrated segment of population that we have put in this, you know, rapidly assembled structure. And that's not dissimilar to what was happening in Nazi Germany. Yes. The big difference is just that we weren't, you know, putting every second person on a train to immediately murder them. Exactly. Which is exactly. like, well, that's good. At least we yeah, were not yeah, right? exactly. so bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it was, um, you know, the the reason the reason why I wrote this book, um, it, it didn't it it didn't fall into my lap, or, or actually it did fall into my lap. Uh, but what I mean by that is that it it actually um, became a calling for me, because one day one day I'm, I'm visiting my mom and she was she was in a, a, a Japanese assisted living facility here in Seattle, and I saw this I saw this little flyer in the elevator that said pilgrimage to Minidoka, and it was happening two months later. I didn't know what a pilgrimage was, and I didn't know what a Minidoka was at the time. And so, yeah, I just kind of, I just kind of ignored it. And, and for two months, that thing popped up everywhere. I, it, it was weird. It was like, a, and so the day, the day before, the day before the, the pilgrimage was supposed to happen, um, it showed up on my windshield. And I said, okay. I will call this number. So I called the number and, and the lady said, wow, this is your lucky day. I just got one cancellation. If you want it, you're in. The next day, I find myself on a 12-hour bus ride to Twin Falls, Idaho, which is which is where Minidoka is, the former camp. And um, and it wasn't until the third day that I, I realized why I was there. Um, on the third day, we had a remembrance ceremony. And uh, we were kind of sitting in front of this I, I, I describe it as a billboard, but this billboard was called the Honor Roll, and it had the name of a thousand men who volunteered out of that concentration camp to fight and die for the United States Army. Again, who put them and their families in those camps to begin with? And I just looked at I, I looked at I knew I knew lots of things about the about the Japanese American camps. I knew lots of things about the men. I did not know about the men who volunteered out of those camps to fight for for, for the army. And and that instantly I, I instantly said this has to be a movie. This has to be a movie, and this is a story that has to be told. And so um, that was 15 years ago. And so since then, I've been researching it, um, and uh, and finally, and and you know, through that through that entire experience of writing this book and interviewing amazing, amazing people, people who 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 are in the in the camps and and guys who were uh, part of the part of the groups that that went to war. I mean, these are some of these guys are Medal of Honor winners uh, uh, recipients. Amazing, amazing people. They all had one thing in common in terms of their request to me. And that one thing was, John, 
let everybody know, let as many people as you can know about this and don't let our experiences and our hardships be forgotten. Because if if we're out there, like I said before, if we're out there educating folks about this, then we can we can also address their second request. And that was do what you can to make sure this doesn't happen in America again. And so it, it became it became a calling. It became a calling. So I know that I'm supposed to be here. I know that I am uh, I am supposed to uh, be sharing this with everybody. And and yeah, it, it's just it's just been a, a phenomenal an amazing honor for me um, to be able to represent all these people and uh, hopefully fulfill their wishes. Yeah. And I mean, you're certainly doing that. You know, you're going out onto media and you're telling this story that I think is wildly underrepresented. And I think, you know, we get that, right? You look at it and you're like, oh, well, this was a really, really shameful part of American history. Like we absolutely dropped the ball. We did the wrong yeah. thing. Like in all aspects, we were way in the wrong. Yeah. And I get that you're like, oh, well, we don't want to talk about that because it's very shameful. And you're like, yeah, but you have to. If we don't you have to about it, you have to. Like, yeah, you will forget about it. And that's the wrong thing to do as well. That's right. That's right. And you know, um, I'm I'm really hoping that a lot of people will be inspired by this story, right? And be inspired by uh what these folks did. You know, I talk about these men who volunteered out of the camps, right? They volunteered when they when they volunteered and they they fought went to war for the United States. They all joined a segregated war unit of Japanese Americans. It was just Japanese Americans, and it was called the 442nd Regimental Combat Team. These guys, all Japanese guys, um, whose average height was I think five six, <laughs> uh, little guys by comparison. Right. To, especially to Germans um, who are like 18 feet tall on average, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> but, um, you know, these guys went on to become the most decorated war unit in the history of the United States for their size and for the for, for the length of ser service and duration. I mean, the most decorated war unit. Right. And a bunch of these guys volunteered out of the camps. They, they came from all over the country. A lot of them came from Hawaii. But these guys were unbelievably brave people, and they they were all there to fight for the United States and prove their loyalty. And the one of the most heartbreaking things about this was that you know when you lose somebody, when you lose a son or a daughter at war, um, a contingent of of military officers come to your home and they present you with an American flag and a gold star. So you you are now a gold star family. A lot of these people were presented with their gold stars because their sons had died in the concentration camps. I mean, they were living, their sons had died, and all of a sudden, this contingent of army officers comes to the camp to present you with an American flag and a gold star. I mean, it's it's, it's insane. And you know, the one of the one of the most ironically crazy things about this whole experience was that our country, the United States, went to war for freedom and democracy around the world, right? We went out to fight for freedom. And yet we had imprisoned our own citizens in concentration camps in America for having done nothing but being born in the wrong ancestry. 
And so when you think about that and you go, oh, my gosh, how does that happen? How did that happen? And um, and so the, the story of these men and, and I specifically talk about one one gentleman. His name was Shiro Kashino and his nickname was Cash. And this man volunteered out of the Minidoka concentration camp. He went to fight. And he was part of the 442nd Regimental Combat Team. And he went on to become one of the most decorated soldiers in World War II. He had six Purple Hearts, meaning he got shot or blown up six times. <laughs> and, and, and you sit there and you go, how does that happen? You know, if somebody shot me with a BB gun, I'd be going to the hospital, right? Or if, if somebody <laughs> shot me with a spit wad, I, I'd be, yeah, I, I mean, you think you think about it today, you get shot. I mean, legitimately shot. Um, you know, you're you're going to the hospital, you're hanging out there for a few days. This guy would wouldn't leave until other people made him leave to get patched up. And he would leave the hospital or, or the, the the field hospital um, before anybody could stop him, so he can go back to fight and be with his men. I mean, who does that? And you know, I mean, th there are men who do that. They're not they're not limited to to Shiro Kashino, but um, you know, th there and there was a term. There was a term for men who did that. It was called reverse AWOL, reverse absent without leave. And these, these, you know, usually when you're AWOL, absent without leave, um, if you're caught, you're in a lot of trouble. But reverse AWOL, right? You're you're just gone, and but you're you're going back to do what they want you to do without being given permission to do it. Um, it it's it's pretty crazy. Yeah, you turn into present without permission, where they're like, hey, yeah, yeah, exactly. I know for a fact you're not supposed to be here. <laughs> right. And, you know, they tried to stop him. I mean, the guys in the field hospital would say, you got to sit this out. And the next thing you know, before they could stop him, he's gone. You know, he's gone back to fight. And so um, and and there were a lot of men like that, um, uh, all, you know, not only in the 442nd, but but in all of World War II um, and just unbelievable bravery and courage. And it's like the the timeline of this is crazy to think about like the condensed version happening to people where it's like, okay, you've been taken from your home. You've been put in a very inhospitable place. You are there, you know, miserable living through hot and cold seasons with very little to your name, you know, just trying to, to get through it. And then one day the people who put you there show up. And they're like, hey, how do you feel about fighting and dying for freedom? Because that's what we're all about. <laughs> exactly, right? And then, and you'd think, you'd think that people would go, go home, go away, right? Thousands of them said, I'm in, let's go, right? It's, 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 it's crazy. It's, well, not, it's amazing. Not only like, okay, like, absolutely, I'm here to fight for freedom. I'm here to fight for my country that I belong to, even if you know, we're having a bit of a fight right now, but like to become the most decorated unit, to become the most, one of the most decorated soldiers yeah. during a period of time where we have heard like, you know, some really epic stories like, oh, some of the greatest men of World War II, like you need to be on that level having come in, having come from a prison camp. Yeah. Like, yeah. We involuntarily locked this person away in a nightmare location and he still showed up and not only fought as hard as he could, fought harder than he was allowed to fight. 
Yeah, right. And you know, when you when you just talk about the prison camp, it, it reminded me of a of a movie. It's it's a pretty old movie. Um, it's called The Dirty Dozen. I don't know if you you saw that, but it was it was with a, a whole bunch of very famous people at that time. And um and the the movie was about these guys who were uh, given an assignment, um, which if they were successful, they were going to be released from prison. <laughs> Because they were legitimately really bad prisoners, <laughs> and, and so, but this wasn't the case with these guys, right? These guys, these guys were in, were, were they were in prisons, but they were concentration camps, and yeah, it was, it was, it was an amazing thing, and the, and and what they did to, to just to prove their loyalty and to, and to prove that they deserved to be Americans just like anybody else, right? Uh, was was really extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, certainly above and beyond the call of duty when you're talking about like, I would expect very little from someone that I have treated extraordinarily badly right. and not right. to like show up at every fight despite on six separate occasions being yeah. wounded to an extent that they award a purple heart. Yeah, exactly. Because you're like, and they didn't give him for getting shot. Like it wasn't peppered with six different pieces of shrapnel and they gave him six awards. Those happened yeah. individual times. <laughs> if he was peppered by a bomb and got six six pieces of shrapnel driven into his body, uh, that was one Purple Heart. Yeah, you know, and so um, so just just really extraordinary stories. And and you know, the book is um, it is it is one storyline, but within that storyline are a whole bunch of extraordinary stories, you know, and um, and it just you know, and and in, in, in the world that we live in today. Um, you know, I think we need we need to be reminded. I think a lot of a lot of us need to be reminded of what it was like. Not only what what it was like, but what these people went through. You know, um, I we talked about the whole victim mentality, right? Stop it. Take responsibility for your life, right? And 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 get get with your. You know, the, these folks they really really did come together as communities. In fact, in some of these in some of these areas. Um, like in in Minidoka in um, in Idaho, they actually brought irrigation to the desert. So if you if you go if you go to Minidoka today, you will see really fertile farmland. And it was interesting because when I went on that original pilgrimage, the folks there were a lot of folks, and this is again back in two thousand eight. There were a lot of folks who were still alive at that time, who were in the concentration camp and remembered it, and. Every one of them said, "Well, look around," and they they said, "It's so green, it's so green," because all it was was tumbleweeds back then when they were there. And um, but they brought they 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 built crops, right? Um, in some in some places like in in Arkansas where the where the concentration there were two there, uh, there were a lot of soybean farms now, right? Well, how did those start? You know. Maybe by some of the Japanese because they kind of like soybeans, but um, it's really interesting how, you know, what the, what what they did in response to a really really bad situation, right? They didn't they they weren't victims. They were like okay, um, here, and and they actually had they actually there's a Japanese saying that's shikara ganai, or shikara nai, which means, you know, there's nothing you can do about it, so suck it up and do what you can. You know, there's actually a Japanese term, and so and that's what they did. That's what they did. Um, so they they made they made the camps. 
bearable. The people who uh, before the camps were cooks and restaurant owners became the cooks, you know, and prepared the food for the camps. And the doctors who were doctors before the camps uh, were doctors, uh, doctors before the camps uh, became doctors for the camps, you know, and, and everybody, everybody came together and, uh, and uh, there were really great community. They create baseball teams um, in Minidoka. They created an all-star baseball team from the 13,000 people who were there and they were allowed to, to uh, go outside of camp and play the local teams. And they went undefeated. They were such a great baseball team, you know? So, um, so as bad as things were, they all came together and made the best of it. Yeah. And that of itself is an amazing story. Yeah. And we're talking, you know, the, the victim mentality that there is, these people were literally victims of their circumstance, you know, through no fault yep. of their own. Yep. And they still like, they found a purpose, a reason to move forward. They really leaned into whatever that was. And, you know, when you're like, Hey, I've got, you know, nothing but time on my hands. I'm going to try and make the absolute best of my situation. You know, when I'm not actively working to better the the homes around me, I'm going to be doing my due diligence as a doctor. When I'm not working as a doctor or, you know, repairing homes, I'm going to be trying to play on this baseball team. And because like I have this outlet, I have a, a path to some level of success. We're going to put our absolute all into it. And that's really pushing forward at its highest level. Yeah. Yeah. What was, what was, um, what was almost heartbreaking was when the war ended and, but the, the, we don't talk much about, about what happened after the war ended. Um, but what happened was that they closed the camps. And so for a lot of people, it was being rendered homeless and evicted all over again, right? Because they had built these, these communities within the camps, but the war was over and everybody got $25 in a one-way bus ticket, somewhere, anywhere, Army didn't care, right, to start their lives all over again. And immediately after World War II, when the camps were closed and everything, there was there, there continued to be an incredible amount of hostility towards the Japanese community on the West Coast and, and around the country. Um, Senator Daniel Inouye, uh, who passed away in 2012, I think, but he was the United States Senator for 49 years. And he died a United States senator. When he returned uh, back to the United States and was on his way home, he walked into a barber shop wearing his American uniform, missing his right arm because it got blown off during the war. And the barber told him to read a sign. And the sign said, we don't cut Jap hair. Now, this guy, these guys were just, when these guys came home, they were honored by President Truman. And they marched through Washington, D.C. in a victory parade. And you would think that, wow, redemption at its finest. But, you know, the only people that saw the parade were the people who were there. The rest of the country, for a long, long time, when these guys came home uh, to Seattle, they uh, wanted to join the Veterans of Foreign Wars. And they, ref they were refused entry to the Veterans of Foreign Wars. And these guys were some of the most decorated men in the history of the United States, right? And they were refused. And so they had to make create their own club. And that's and that's what they did. Really hard, hard to find jobs, hard to find housing, because as bad as it was, right? 
Um, during World War II, when people when people felt like, you know, if you look like the enemy, you are the enemy. When the war was over, it got kind of worse because not only were they the former enemy, they were the former enemy that lost the war. And so um, the way they were treated for decades um, after the war, the, it, it was it was it was it was really bad. It was really bad and really sad. Um, but they stuck to it. Right. And they stuck to their they stuck to their dreams of a better life for them and their families. And they won. They won. And and it's just it's just an extraordinary story of and that's why I call it American grit. Right. Because one could say that it's uniquely American, but it is grit at its finest. Right. And so um, so it's it's a very inspiring. It's a sad. Uh, it's a it's a heartbreaking story. But at the same time, it is if you look at it from the standpoint of um, what you can learn from it to apply to your own life, uh, it's extraordinary. It's extraordinary. Yeah. I mean, it is grit and perseverance at its finest because you're mm -hmm. talking about people who've been, you know, evicted not once, but twice, like they were taken from their homes, put in these camps that they absolutely didn't want to be. And what they made their homes of, which was a whole new community taken from that as well, <laughs> Sent out into, you know, just find a place. I don't care wherever. Not like, oh, hey, we're really sorry about that. What can we do to make this all right? Exactly. For you? Just like, exactly. Nah, go, go do it again. Like, I yep. know you had to start over from scratch a second time. Go ahead and do it again. Do it again yep. just because. And, and then, have a nice day. Have yeah, fun. Here's 25 <laughs> bucks. Um, yeah. And then, you know, people coming back from war, from literally, you know, putting their lives on the line with all of that also behind them, right? Two evictions and, you know, all kinds of imprisonment also served in the war, served American, you know, military. And they come home and they're like, no, no, we don't recognize you, only real Americans. And right, like, exactly. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, 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 is, it is truly a, a, the kind of thing that we never want to see happen again. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, and I think that I think that if if we are aware um, of this story and stories like it, we can we can at least we can at least start to see the signs <laughs> when, when and understand understand the signs when we start to see them. So yeah, yeah. I mean, these are historical billboards we should be putting up about like the ability to push through, you know, any bad outcome. We're <laughs> like, yeah, you're like here's a great example of pushing through the worst situation to make a better life for yourself. So, I mean, that's absolutely like a great lesson for today. Just yeah. to, to show people, you know, American grit. Yeah. And, and, and it's, it's crazy. You know, you, you, people think about the term American grit and you get a certain image and that image usually isn't um, a bunch of Japanese people. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so, and so, um, so it's a little bit of a, huh? Um, but, but nonetheless, the, the story's there. The, everything, everything in 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 the book is true. It actually happened, and um, and yeah, it's 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 just been an honor. I hope I hope people I hope I hope your listeners read read the book, and you know if you do read the book, instead of putting it up on the bookshelf after you're done with it, pass it along, pass it along, and give it to somebody else so they can learn from this experience and tell them to pass it along. I could care less about everybody, all these people buying books, right? Being buying brand new. I just want uh, folks to learn and, um, and, and know about this uh, because 
it could happen again. And we, none of us want that to happen. Yeah. I mean, that is definitely one of these lessons to take away for today's life is like, no matter what we look like on the outside or what bucket we end up in, like at the end of the day, this is American. Like we are all supposed to be in this together. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, you know, one of the things I think that, um, you know, I think for, for me, I think there's two ways to approach this. Um, the first way is top down, right? Our, our government, the divisiveness starts with our government. Um, it's crazy how divided it is and, and the vitriol that comes, that, that comes out of, out of the mouths of these people who are our elected representatives. We need to elect people who won't do that and who won't do things that divide this country. But that's, that's up there. And, and, you know, there's not a whole heck of a lot I can do about that, but where I can come in and where you can come in and where your listeners can come in is from the bottom up. Right. And I think that, you know, if we can, if we can just start to live with a little more love and less fear, less fear, more love, right. Sounds kind of crazy, but we, we all live in so much fear these days. And if we can find a way to live with less fear and bring a little more love into the world, it'll, it'll take us a long, long way, I think. And we all have it in us. Your life, regardless of how good or bad it is, is a result of decisions that you've made. You've made. Think, if you think about that, you go, you know what? If I buy into this idea, then it becomes pretty damn liberating because you go, I'm going to make different decisions. <laughs> and one of the decisions that I hope people will make is, you know, I'm going, I'm going to be part of this conversation. And when stuff like this happens, whether it be who I am, and remember, I talked about all these buckets. There are dozens of buckets out there, right? Just recognize that 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 when we see this coming, um, help to get out in front of it. Have have conversations. Bring people together, and and so that's that's what I'm hoping that this book does. That, that it gives people uh, a really great source of education and and entertainment, right? R really interesting, an interesting story, but brings people together and kind of prompts people to start having these conversations. I love the idea of folks having um, book club conversations around this book. And it's, it's it's just a wonderful thing, just knowing that that people are actually learning from it. So I, I encourage you to learn. I encourage you to, um, if you can, pick it, pick it up and, uh, and, and share it and share it. I've, I've, I've spoken way too much. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. Well said all great points. I mean, things to strive for and a great lesson to leave people with. I would love to give you some time just to say, you know, where to find your book, American grit and where to find more of you. If people are looking for more of you. Yeah. You know what? Th thank you. Thank you, Colton. Um, I, I just, I just want to tell your audience that I, you know, I don't, I don't, I, I, maybe I know some of you, but I don't know a whole lot of you. Um, but you know what, as Colton said a little bit earlier, we're all in this together. We're all in this together, you know, and, and I want to bring people together. I mean, that I, I, I retired uh, about a year ago and I believe that there, that we all have three careers in our life. I think the first career is to learn. I think the second career is to earn. 
for our families and a livelihood. And the third career is to return and give back. And and my my belief is that is that one of the reasons why we are all here is to make the world better than the day we got here by loving one another. And you know, and that that's that's kind of what I'm dedicating my life to. And so, um, and this, and and hopefully, this book is is one of the means to that end. Um, but uh, if if your audience would like more information, they can go to johnsuzuki.com, and they can also go to a na- neighborhood bookstore. And um, a lot of the, a lot of the stores are carrying it, but hopefully, more and more will. Um, and if that doesn't work, you can always go to Amazon. Um, it's an Amazon bestseller. I'm really proud of that. Um, but also, just to let you know too, um, the book's been accepted by the Japanese American National Museum. So that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Uh, there, there's a, that, that's a mark of, uh, of approval, if you will. And so, yeah, um, so check it out. And if you don't, if you don't buy the book, uh, learn, just learn about this experience, you know, and there's all kinds of places. You just Google Japanese American concentration camps <laughs> and you'll come up with hundreds and hundreds of pages of things that you can learn from. And so, uh, but thank you. Thank you, Colton. Thank you. Thank you all for, for listening. And, um, and yeah, God bless you and, and uh, live long and prosper. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Everyone go pick it up. If you have access to it, American Grit, fantastic book. If you're buying it online through Amazon, don't forget to leave reviews that helps, you know, lift up these authors that you enjoy the messages you enjoy and helps other people find them. If you go to your local bookstore and they don't have it on the shelf already, ask them they will order it for you and then you can have it physically wonderful otherwise like i will put your website in the description in the show notes so that people can find it i hope they look you up and i hope they find you know everything that they need to learn awesome thank you colton thank you for having me and thank you all for listening i really think it's time we start talking about these stains on our collective pasts only by being fully aware of who we are and what we've done Will we be able to build a brighter future with a fuller picture? Make sure you're doing your part to at least make others aware and give them the chance to learn through interviews like this one. In brighter news, August has continued to move forward despite my pleas for it to stop, so we've got updated rankings. Number 1. The United States, now led by New Jersey, Michigan, and Oregon. Number 2. Ontario, Canada which is how I'll be referring to it until we get some better competition again. Number three, the United Kingdom, with England passing Scotland for the top spot. Number four, Australia, led back to the top five by New South Wales. And number five, Colombia. Welcome to the top time for the first time, Colombia. That's it for this week. I'll see you all back here for the next episode. Until then, please do all the things that help the show grow, like rating, reviewing, liking, and subscribing. Reach out to dumbenoughpodcast at gmail.com or to the show on any of the social media platforms if you want to reach me personally. Most importantly, stay dumb.